This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're going to discuss the European Union, one of the most important, groundbreaking, but also problematic uh, institutional transformations in our world in the last 50 years. I remember very vividly in the late 20th century, as I was finishing my scholarly studies and becoming a scholar, how much interest and excitement there was around the European Union. And it's a topic that's remained with us, but the excitement waxes and wanes, but its importance certainly does not change. And so we're fortunate today to have with us one of the foremost people writing and interacting with the European Union and someone who can really share with us how the European Union has changed over the last few years and its changing relevance for the world today. This is my friend and colleague, Dr. Lawrence Radai. Welcome, Lawrence. It's a pleasure to be here. Lawrence is a professor at the LBJ School, and at the LBJ School, he also serves as the graduate advisor for the Global Policy Studies Program, and he really does a fantastic job in preparing our students for international affairs and international policy issues, including helping them with their writing, among many other things. <laughs> Lawrence previously served as a press officer in the European Parliament, which is actually a, a fascinating institution. It's the directly elected legislature of the European Union. Many Americans don't know that such an institution exists. It's, it's their Congress, in a sense. And it has all the pathologies of our Congress, too. Uh, Radai's research and writing focus on European politics, the European Union, and the role of the European Parliament. He's written quite a lot about how the institutions of the European Union affect foreign policy making, particularly the European Union's relations with the United States and other parts of the world. So we're very fortunate to have Lawrence with us today. Before we turn to our discussion with Lawrence, we have, of course... Mr. Zachary's scene-setting poem. Zachary, what is your poem titled today? What Becomes of a Continent. Let's hear what becomes of a continent. What becomes of a continent, they wondered, packing up their guns and heading home. What becomes of a continent, they asked, forsaking their wartime prayers for peacetime skirmishes. What becomes of a continent when the bombs have all exploded and no one else can see the ghosts of apartment block and Coventry and Frauenkirche? When no one wants to speak the unspeakable or reverse the irreversible and no one else cares to see the forest for the Bergen-Belsen, they silently intone. When no one else can see what has been erased, they worry. But no matter, we will eat our cheese and they will eat their sausages and we will forget what cannot be forgotten. Now I was negative 12 at Maastricht and negative 47 in Rome, and I marched negative 19 through the streets of Schengen, dreaming of a treaty zone. And slowly we ate their sausages, and they imported cheese, till suddenly our honey came from Eastern European bees. <laughs> I, I love all the historical references. J just to clarify, Zachary, the negatives, the, the, those were your ages, right? You were, yes. you were, you yes. were the unborn for those historical moments, <laughs> exactly. such as the Maastricht Treaty. W what is your poem about, Zachary? My poem is really about uh, the, uh, the, the uh, absurdity of the European Union as an institution and the fact that it is in some ways a miraculous occurrence that from the ravages of war-torn Europe in the mid-20th century, an institution 
that professed unity was born. But at the same time, the absurdity of its existence and the fact that in many ways it seems to be riding the waves of current events in ways that other nations and institutions don't have to. Right. So it seems like it, it's a miracle that it exists, but it also seems strange in its existence, exactly. right? Right. Lawrence, what, what's a quick way to start our understanding of, of why the EU exists? I actually really like Zachary's formulation of the point of the EU, which is to forget the unforgettable, right? So in my classes, when I teach about the European Union, I often make reference to the, the EU's official motto, which is unity and diversity. It's a motto nobody knows, by the way. <laughs> and what I always tell my students is that actually the real motto of the European Union is screw history. <laughs> and I don't always put it so delicately, but but the reason I say that, and I, I love that I can tell this to you as a historian, right, is that it is a very deliberate attempt, right, at the end of the Second World War to draw a line under centuries worth of nationalist and religious wars. And to say, we are going to build something that is going to make all of those wars impossible in the future. And that, I think, is a very bold idea, right? And it starts with something very technical in terms of you know, pooling coal and steel production, right? But the goal of it was from the very beginning, right, after the Second World War, was to make world wars impossible. And so, to, so the, the European Union fundamentally is a peace project, right? And as such, it's been actually remarkably successful. And that's something that I think a lot of times we forget is that there hasn't been massive violence and certainly not between or among the member states of the European Union since it's since the founding of the European coal and steel community. And that's the longest that Europe has gone for centuries without real bloodshed. And so in that sense, it's I like that formulation that Zachary had, right? That the point of it is to forget the unforgettable. And Lawrence, how has it done this? And how has the structure of the European Union evolved over time as it seeks to maintain peace in light of challenges such as the war in Yugoslavia a few decades ago, but also obviously international economic challenges and, and various other challenges? So I think that the idea behind the European Union, again, is this relatively ambitious right, peace project, but the novelty of the European Union, and back in the end of the Second World War, it wasn't called that yet, it was just the European Coal and Steel Community, was to focus on very, very specific economic integration to create this kind of zone of peace, right? So the idea is that you create bonds that are essentially technocratic, economic, they are common standards, they are common rules that bind countries together so that these states become so intertwined, both in their politics, but also in their, in their interests, that it doesn't really make logical sense for them to go to war with each other, right? And so that's essentially what the European Union did for five to seven decades after the Second World War, is it did this, and then it also expanded geographically to take in you know, the Eastern European countries after the fall of the, of the Iron Curtain. So it's been sort of expanding geographically this zone of peace and also deepening it in the sense that by now, you can't really come up with any kind of reason why, let's say, you know, Germany would want to invade Belgium, right? Because it just doesn't make any economic or political or geographic or geopolitical sense anymore, right? Because of these common structures that the European Union has created. And over the last five years, there's been particular pressure on the European Union, really more than the last five years, but particularly the last five years, obviously due to issues regarding economic inequality within the system, challenges to its role internationally, and of course, challenges in its relationship with the United States. How, how has the, the international face of the European Union changed in the last five years or so? 
That's a good question. I think generally speaking, the EU has, I think, become more fearful and more hesitant and less influential over the past five years or, or, or the last decade. And, and there are several reasons for this. The first is, you know, the the, the financial crisis of 2008 and the ensuing euro crisis, which really sapped uh, Europe's confidence in its own economy. There was the so-called migration crisis in 2015 that made it feel very vulnerable to, to global population shifts. Brexit, the decision by the United Kingdom to leave the European Union, was also a symbolic blow. It was the first major decrease in the EU's territory or membership ever since the, the European Union itself uh, in, the, in 1992 um, came into existence. Russia's use of physical force to take Crimea and destabilize Ukraine also rattled the EU. And within the EU as well, there was lots of backsliding in certain member states on, on liberal values and, and rule of law, um, which also sapped the EU's credibility. So I think there were a lot of things that happened in the past five to 10 years that um, have made the EU just more inward looking and, and a little bit less, less influential on the international scene. And the other thing that I will say is the, the sort of flip side of this is that one of the reasons we can say that it is not living up to its promise, right, is because the expectations on the EU have also grown. So we don't really expect any international organization besides the EU to be a powerful international actor in its own right. That's just not something that we expect of it. But the EU has created these expectations for itself because it talked a big game in terms of how it wanted to become a, a at least a regional power, but if not one of the superpowers in the world. And then it hasn't met those expectations that it has set for itself. So I think part of it is also just a, a question of how the, the reality meets the expectations that we, that, we, that we sort of have of the EU itself. How has the EU handled authoritarians outside of its borders, namely Russia, and also wannabe authoritarians within its borders? So I think it's important actually to, to ask the question this way that you did, which is that it's to, to focus on both, right? Authoritarian, rising authoritarianism within the union and on its borders. And I think the the main reason that the EU itself has been a bit lackluster in responding to authoritarianism on its borders is precisely because it has been unable to deal with authoritarianism within its borders. And to me, this is actually the gravest danger to the EU, that it, that it loses its credibility as a voice for liberal democracy and the rule of law because of the actions of a number of its member states. So internally, the EU hasn't really been able to, to really influence or stop the, the liberal backsliding in, in, for instance, in Hungary or in Poland. And that's for a variety of reasons, which you can uh, get into in a minute if you like. But I think that has also made it very hard for the EU to credibly talk about liberal values and their importance in its relationships with other countries such as Russia Russia and China because all of a sudden it looks it looks to be very hypocritical if it does so so I think the the, the general response to, um, to to sort of rising authoritarianism across the the world has been really hampered by these internal um, the internal rise of authoritarianism within within several EU member states and I think, as you said, Lawrence, this is something we should dig a little deeper into. You you so eloquently articulated the mission of the uh, what what became the EU, right, as as a zone of peace, so there would never again be uh, a war like World War II or the many many wars that had preceded it in Europe. Uh, embedded in that notion of peace after World War II was a set of assumptions about liberal democracy. 
Um, and we see those uh, still as the image of the European Union in many ways, uh, even during uh, President Biden's recent visit to Europe. Uh, all the photographs, right, are designed to be photographs that show us, you know, democratically elected leaders <laughs> coming together to meet of one kind or another, whether it's through the G7 or an EU framework. So, so, so why has it been so hard then in recent years to deal with uh, the rise of authoritarianism in a zone that is so so uh, self-consciously set up to emphasize liberal democracy? So I think the real reason, and this is sort of my interpretation, I'm not sure that everybody who, who studies this in detail would, would necessarily agree, is that the assumption among the leaders of the European Union, right, in the in the 90s, when, when the European Union really ex- started its project of expanding into Central and Eastern Europe, is that liberal democracy is to a certain extent sticky, right? So once you sort of, and, and kind of a one-way street, like once you become more and more liberal and more and more democratic, you essentially get yourself into that mode and that, and, and, and it's very hard to go back um, and to, to de-democratize or de-liberalize, right? People thought that, you know, this was in the euphoria after the end of the Cold War, thinking that that liberal democracy is going to be sort of the end result of the Cold War, you know, it, it, liberal democracy right. had won. And so there was this understanding that, that this was a one-way street. And I think it was very hard to understand that that's not necessarily the case. And the institutions of the European Union weren't set up to deal with this. And so while there had been a lot of hand-wringing among several, you know, especially the European Parliament, but also some uh, governments of, of solidly established liberal democracies in, in Europe, there have been very few ways to, to actually be able to, to sanction governments that have been um, undermining the rule of law. And so that has changed recently. So there's been, um, there's been some legislation passed that is tying, for instance, EU funds to, to the respect for the rule of law. But a lot of that is going to be you know, going through long legal processes, etc. So it's going to take a long time. It's not a nimble approach to, to, to fighting authoritarianism within. And that's because the EU was never set up to do that. Um, the idea was always, you know, this is a club of the liberal democracies. And, you know, once the Central and Eastern European countries join, and once, for instance, Portugal, after fascism had ended there, joined, they would sort of get accustomed and and, um, and socialized into these liberal democratic norms, and it wouldn't occur to anybody to backslide. And so that, I think, is one of the things that really surprised many in the European Union of how quickly this backsliding can happen, and then how hard it is to, to do anything about it. And then the second thing, and this is just very short, right, is that the those who, those governments that, that are on the on the forefront of this kind of uh, liberal backsliding, they can protect each other in you know votes where unanimity is is needed. Right. So a lot of times it's also just a, an institutional setup question that you know they can sort of have each other's backs. Right, right. The system is set up uh, for unanimity, uh, and uh, obviously that allows even one outlier to to have a lot of influence. I, I guess Lawrence, for me as a historian and an observer. One of the surprises is not simply that the EU has trouble taking action against internal authoritarians, but that these authoritarians are attractive to citizens because the EU, especially for countries like Hungary, has so much to offer to these relatively new entrants to the European Union. It has a lot to offer them in terms of access to markets, in terms of uh, the promise of uh, more open politics, 
And so why within this, shall we say, circle of privileged states, why are some of the privileged rebelling against their very sources of privilege? I think that's a really good question. And and I have a, a few answers to that, right? So the first is, as you said, these governments are are actually relatively popular among their citizens, right? And this is why I never use the term democratic backsliding, because a lot of them are democratically elected. It's not the same as in Belarus, where, you know, it's completely forged election results, right? They are democratically legitimate to a certain degree. What it really is, is is backsliding in terms of liberal values. And so so the the couple of explanations that I have is, first of all, um, the way that the EU is set up and this is one of the um, the common critiques of it, is that um, even in places like Hungary, that are um, you know where the government is actually um, in its rhetoric uh, very antagonistic to the EU, a very large portion of Hungary's GDP comes from actual EU funds. Right, these are direct payments essentially from German, Swedish, and Dutch taxpayers, right, that come into the into the pockets of the of the Hungarian government that can then distribute it. Right, so. They can actually blame the European Union for all the failings of, the, of their policies while at the same time taking advantage of EU funds. And that combination, I think, is, is quite toxic in the sense that it, it allows for these governments to keep their constituents happy with all sorts of social programs and spending, etc., while at the same time also railing against the very institution that makes this possible. And the second thing, and this is something that I think is, I, I don't hear too many people talking about, is that... In a lot of places where you have this kind of liberal backsliding, right? I'm thinking of Turkey, Ukraine, these kinds of places, right? You see very big protests after a while because there is a kind of urban liberal middle class, right? That for whom these values are really important and they they come out into the streets, right? And you have a Maidan in Ukraine, right? Or you have these big protests in Istanbul and in Turkey a few years ago. And the reason that I think you don't see that as much in these, um, as you said, in these kind of privileged states, right? So the, the the member states of the EU is that being a member of the of the European Union has some very big advantages for these kinds of you know liberal democratic middle class, I would say, elites, but more in terms of like intellectual elites, which is that they can travel freely. And so I'm a perfect example of this, right? So I'm the type of person who actually protests again. I, I, I'm sitting in Budapest right now, actually, for the summer. And, you know, last weekend, there was a protest against the government for trying to set up a huge Chinese university here in a place where that was essentially planned for Hungarian university students to have a have a new uh, dormitory complex. And so I went out and protested, right? But for most of the year, as you know, um, I sit in Texas, right? right. <laughs> I'm, I'm abroad, right? Now, for a lot of my my sort of friends and, and and co-patriots who are also not terribly fond of this government, they live in Brussels, they live in Berlin, they live in Vienna. You can just grab a train, jump on it in two hours, you're in Vienna, nobody checks your passports, you're allowed to work there without a, uh, any kind of paperwork for getting a work visa, etc., right? So there's kind of a safety valve in these in these Eastern European countries, right, of very easy emigration to Western Europe that I think you know, is not present in, for instance, Turkey or Ukraine. And so a lot of these ways to undermine liberal democracy are easier to, to implement because those people who are who are most bothered by it, at least a big chunk of them, instead of being out in the streets and, you know, really making a, a ruckus, forming new political parties, really being active in the opposition, they just leave. 
And that, I think, is something that's, that's also weirdly something that the European Union makes possible. And it's, of course, great for these citizens, but I think in terms of the, the political systems in these, in these countries, it's, it's actually in the long run potentially a problem. Right. So freedom makes unfreedom possible as well. Yeah, it's it's kind of a you know instead of a a brain drain, right? It's kind of like a, a liberal values drain. <laughs> Zachary, you had a question. Yeah. So returning to to uh, the topic of Chinese intervention in, in countries like Hungary, um, what has been the relationship between the EU and China, particularly when they're so economically tied? And and might this change, especially with the German federal election in September, where this has sort of been a major issue? Mm-hmm. So. Let me take those two two separately. I think um, the relationship between uh, the EU and China, as you said, is um, very much based on on these economic ties, right? So the EU has generally been much more cautious with China uh, than the US, for instance, and less willing to challenge it geopolitically. And you saw this at the G7 meeting just uh, uh, yesterday or day before, where the common position on China was actually pretty watered down, and and, and the US came out with a with a separate statement on China that was a that was a bit um, bit more strident, right? And so the EU in general doesn't tend to ch- openly challenge China as um, uh, as overtly as the US does. I think where the EU does actually play a bit of hardball, um, but it's, I think, somewhat harder to see because it flies under the radar of, uh, of what we usually pay attention to, is over specific global norms and rules. Um, because Generally speaking, the European Union and China are, are in this kind of norm-setting or, or standard-setting war right now, right? And I'm thinking about things like, you know, global rules on data privacy or cybersecurity or um, you know, rules for providing access to 5G networks or legal standards for new technologies like artificial intelligence or something like that, right? And so here, I think there's a competition between kind of the standards that, that that China wants to push, and then the standards that Europe wants to push, and the EU especially is very concerned with pushing um, standards that that are based in in its in its values of of, um, of openness and liberal democracy and data privacy and those kinds of things. So there, I think there's actually you know a lot more friction than what we see, but it's usually contained to um, a very specific subset of, of of standard setting issues, right? So those aren't necessarily always on the front page, but in terms of open confrontation with China, I think it's much more careful. Now, in terms of the the German elections, right, which is the second part of your question, Zach, I mean, German elections are, are going to be crucial, not only for EU-China relations, but for the EU's future as a whole, right? Nothing that the EU does happens without at least the tacit consent, but most likely the support of the German government, right? I mean, they are, they are one of the, the top two most important member states, along with France. And there, I think, you know, we'll, we'll see sort of where the, the, the campaign goes. There's already been some back and forth in terms of who's, who's leading the polls, right? But Armin Laschet, who's the, the candidate of the Christian Democratic Union, the, the main center-right party, it, it's hard to say that this is even possible, but he's kind of an even less charismatic version of current Chancellor Angela <laughs> Merkel, right? I mean, it's sort of the you know, add some beige to the gray, right? <laughs> and so I don't see him being very likely to make bold suggestions or to to lead the EU in a new direction, right? It seems like he's taking um, the same approach that Angela Merkel did, which is sort of very, very careful, very um, piecemeal, right? 
and and mostly focused on German interests, not on you know the interests of, of Europe as a whole. Mm-hmm. So the the second favorite candidate, right? The uh, currently the one in second place is uh, Annalena Baerbock, who's the um, the candidate of the Green Party. Now that you know, if she became chancellor, that would bring a lot more change to Germany in general, right? She's she's young. She's from a party that has never you know governed or, or had a, had a, a chancellor before. But to me, at least, and you know, I haven't read too too much but it's it's a little unclear what her ideas and priorities would be for Europe. I mean, she has clear ideas and priorities that she's talked about for Germany, especially on the environmental front, but but I hadn't heard her really talk um or write about, you know, her vision for 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 Germany's role in Europe or for for that matter, which is what your question is Europe's role in the world, right? And so I'm unsure what chancellorship under bear book would look like, but for sure, everybody's kind of holding their breath to see what, what happens with these elections, right? This is one of the, the, the major um, inflection points also for EU foreign policy. And the French also have a major presidential election coming up in the next few years as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, and there, and there, of course, President Macron seems to have a much more um, federalist, a federalist and, and right. an ambitious vision for the European Union, correct? Yeah, and you know he's been relatively open about this since he became president, right? Um, and you know, I, I actually was was very I, I had high hopes for for Macron because he and um, uh, Matteo Renzi in, in Italy actually had you know had at least the um, the willingness to spend some political capital on saying no, we are actual European federalists, and this is what we want to do. And by the way, for um, those listeners who don't kind of know the code word for that, a European federalist is somebody who basically wants a uh, an even more powerful European Union. So for m- member state governments to cede even more power to, to to sort of this federal level, which would be the, the the EU level. And you know, it's it's something that you know I, I I'm one of those. Hopefully not a dying breed, right? But at least, um, at least an endangered species of European federalists. I actually think that that would be a great idea. I, I, I would love to, to to see that happen. But but I'm also a pessimist, um, so I don't see it happening anytime soon. So in in a way, what I foresee is that the EU will do in the next couple of years um, what it's best at, which is you know muddling through in a very slow, inefficient frustrating way right but in a way that's also still immensely useful in our in our current world of rising nationalism right and this is what sort of brings us back to the beginning right whatever way we are frustrated with the european union and what its role is in the world and, and how it's handling its own internal challenges right i think what's important to realize is that if we look at it as a peace project it's still working i mean no matter what we're, we're talking about in terms of our frustrations with the EU. Nobody's trying to figure out, oh, well, where are the Italians going to attack the Slovenians next, right? <laughs> like, where are they going to cross the border? Like, that's not, you know, that's just not something that we talk about. And I think that's still, it, it seems weird, right? And we laugh at that, but but that's still, we, we I think we sometimes need to remind ourselves that that hasn't been the normal in European history, right? As Jeremy knows, um, for a very long time, right? And the fact that we can, we can laugh at that sentence and be like, oh, yeah, the Maginot line, that was a funny thing, right? When the French, like, defended against the Germans in a way that didn't work for more than two hours, right? But the fact is, they don't have to anymore. And that's still kind of an accomplishment. So I think if we, if you if sort of trying to 
squeeze blood from a stone, right? Like squeeze a little bit of optimism out of my Eastern European pessimism, right? Then I think that's what I would focus on. It's such an important point, Lawrence. I mean, it's it's very hard historically to come up with any other example of a region that has been so embedded in conflict, and conflict not just in the places that are famous for conflict, Germany and France, but at every level, as you say, you know, conflict around the Italian peninsula and elsewhere. And then over the course of really a half century, for that to become unthinkable. And unthinkable not because one country conquered the area, but because of a set of not equally consensual, but generally consensual decisions made. Uh, it's extraordinary, and, it, and it's it's ironic that the United States, some Americans often uh, look down on this, right? see the Europeans as weak, when this is actually an incredible historical accomplishment, and you, you've articulated that, that so well. Lawrence, I wanted to ask quickly about COVID, uh, about responses to COVID. We, we haven't talked about that in, in our first uh, 20, 25 minutes or so, and, and I think that's indicative of uh, these other issues being so important, but 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 how has the EU dealt with COVID? And since you do have the advantage of being an expert on both the EU and the United States, uh, what are some of the differences you see? Yeah, it's a good question. I think you know, I think the the pandemic has shown both how much the EU is necessary and also how um, ill-equipped it is to. Um, to, to deal with the these kinds of big issues for which it is necessary, and what I want to mean by what I mean by that is that you know clearly there are, there are ways in which the EU was was best placed to deal with um, with, with COVID nineteen right um, in terms of the institutions that that Europe has it was the 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 actor with the biggest clout and size that you need to negotiate bulk prices and access to vaccines right from from vaccine makers there's a European medicines agency which would have been the sort of perfect place to, to vet vaccines for emergency use and make sure that you know any vaccine that's 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 allowed in in one country would be uh, would be acceptable in another. You would have needed a lot of EU coordination on travel rules and and vaccination cards and and border controls and all this, right? And what's strange is that even though it was clear that you know. I mean, think about some uh, a state like Luxembourg, right? Which is, you know, especially compared to Texas, right? Like it's it's smaller than a county in Texas, right? It doesn't make sense to have a national Luxembourgish policy on COVID, right? I mean, you know, you you you, you sneeze on one side of Luxembourg and the, the 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 virus travels, you know, across the border. So, but but at the same time, right? A lot of the the actual interventions, right, whether those were lockdowns or travel restrictions or vaccination drives or border controls, all of these were still in national competence, right? So each member state was reacting differently. So you had lockdowns in one place and then they would be open in another and then you'd flip as the virus spread. And so you had these constantly recurring waves of infections. And if this sounds very similar, right, or familiar to your listeners, because it's exactly what was happening in the US, where individual states were making, you know, creating their own mask mandates or not mask mandates or rules about lockdowns versus not and these kinds of things, right? So what's what's interesting is that you have the same, to, to me, it was actually quite similar to the US response in the sense that there was a clear need for a centralized and, and efficient rollout of, of, of policies. And the relative independence of these units, right? In the US, it's the states and in the EU, it's the member states made it much, much more difficult, right? So just to give you an example. So as I mentioned, I'm sitting in Budapest, but I had to drive to the to the Czech Republic a few weeks ago. 
which meant if you look on a map that I had to drive through Slovakia, right? So that means two border crossings to get to the Czech Republic and then two boarding crossings to come back, right? And just the amount of time it took me to research what documents I would need to be allowed to enter Slovakia so I could drive through Slovakia, which takes like 45 minutes, by the way, to then enter the Czech Republic and then what the rules are for coming back and do I need to quarantine in each place and what kinds of, you know, sort of, Tests do I need to be allowed to enter? What kind of vaccination cards do they accept as proof? All this kind of stuff, right? And that's just me going as a private citizen. But you can imagine the cost of that to business, right? That needs to have all sorts of cross-border movements all the time. So these kinds of inefficiencies really do matter. It's not just, you know, annoying for, for the average citizen, right? But it's going to have a lot of, of costs as well, right? And so, so on this front, you know, Generally, the way that the EU moves forward in its integration process is there's a crisis that hits and the people realize, oh, wow, we really messed this up. And this would have been a lot cleaner to do if the European Union were able to coordinate this. So I actually expect that in the next couple of years, that there's probably going to be a larger role for the EU in kind of pandemic response, because all the member states are going to agree that that benefits everybody. Right. This is the very traditional functionalist argument, right? That the the needs of the members will, in the end, drive the the evolution of the system. Yeah, and and that and that basically just the the, the clear need of a certain policy to be made at a higher level is going to become apparent to everybody, right? Whether that's businesses, citizens, governments, etc., right? And then they they will be less protective of their competences, right? And be more willing to let the EU do that job for them. So I, I like that optimistic note, Lawrence. You're, you're getting more and more optimistic the longer I know you, which I like. Uh, <laughs> strangely enough, I'm surprised, but I, I, li- I, I like it. Uh, um, I, I guess, uh, you know, as you know, we always like to close on an optimistic note. And, and I'd like to hear and, and for you to share your insights with our audience about what you see as some of the possibilities for the EU going forward in the next three to five years, particularly possibilities that affect international affairs. What are the ways in which the EU can be a helpful partner to some of the international changes that we want to see? And what are the ways in which our listeners can better follow and even contribute to those developments? It's a good question. So I think maybe two things. So one, I think, is relatively likely, which is that the EU is still very much in the forefront of setting standards in a lot of um, in a lot of areas that are um, that are kind of below the um, the threshold of what we pay attention to right so I think the perfect example for this was the um, uh, data protection um, realm right where the reason that certain American websites now can't actually sell your information to advertisers and then um, basically, you know, just data mine uh, every click that you make, it's because the European Union passed pretty stringent regulation on on what kinds of data companies can collect on you and how, what they can do with that data, right? And big websites that have to operate both in Europe and the United States and across the world um, didn't want to actually, you know, bother with having different standards of data protection on different websites, depending on the IP address that you're using, right? So essentially, these EU um, regulations become became global norms, right? And so generally speaking, I think the EU does have a very sort of citizen-centric, rights-centric, and liberal approach to, to many issues. So in the coming years, I think as these, you know, very tough, um, I think new technologies are going to come become more mainstream, whether it's artificial intelligence or biotechnology or these kinds of things. I think the EU is still going to be there to, to make sure that, that there are some regulations that sort of 
keep this keep these technologies humane, right? And um, and and make sure that they don't sort of um, run amok, right? Um, so that I'm relatively confident in. What I am less confident in, but I think would be even more important, right, is that the European Union is still the only that I can think of, the only example in the world of a relatively successful form of political organization that does not rely on nationalism. And that Mm -hmm. in fact is not necessarily rejecting nationalism, but that has no space for nationalism within its structures. And I think with, not just with rising authoritarianism, but with the, what to me is actually even more um, problematic, the, the rise in nationalism across the world. I think it's really important that there be an example that there's a different way to do politics, that you don't need to be stuck in these kind of nationalist um, frames, right, to organize politics. What I mean by that is, you know, just you don't have to have a country in order to um, regulate train travel, right? Like you can actually, you know, you can maintain clear water supplies without having to sort of create a, a, a nationalist idea of citizenship, right? And to me, you know, this kind of thing is actually really important, right? Because if we are going to look at any of our big challenges in front of us in terms of global policies, right, whether it's global climate change or space trash or any of these kinds of, you know, big global issues that clearly cannot be solved by individual countries alone, I think we will need examples of um, of non-nationalist or post-nationalist policymaking that give us hope that that we can actually tackle those globally. That it's so well said, Lawrence, and and of course one of the underlying approaches to building peace, as you described earlier, after World War II in Europe, was to de-emphasize nationalism because nationalism was seen as one of the sources of militarism, and and so these are deeply intertwined. Uh, Zachary, is this uh, a vision, particularly this latter point from from Lawrence? Is this something that you think can be attractive to young people, a, a vision, a model of international cooperation that's not built upon nationalism, but built on something else, on regionalism or a, a common post-national identity? What do you think? Yes, I definitely think that that the European Union serves as a model for young people who who want to escape the sort of nationalist binary that we've been in for so long. But I also think that it's, it's a good model of, of how to handle issues of cultural diversity. I mean, the fact that the European Union can cover so many languages and so many cultures and yet still make the trains run is pretty amazing. And I think that moving beyond the the, the aura of nationalism is, is a way to achieve that. I think there's, there's something to that. Last question, Lawrence. Do you think this is a way in which history can be rewritten also, that there's a useful history of cooperation? Most of the historical examples we think of that were in Zachary's poem are, of course, examples of conflict, but perhaps as a, as a different kind of history here. What do you think of that? This is interesting, right? It's a question of, you know, you, you know this better than most, right? But But you know, history always changes depending on the time that you're living in, right? Um, and how it's being interpreted. And to, to give away my age, just the way that Zachary gave away his age with his negative numbers, right? <laughs> I basically came of age in the 1990s, right? And so the idea was we were on this kind of path of progress, right? And things had been getting better for a while. And all of a sudden they got a lot better. The, the, the Iron Curtain fell. The Cold War was over without anybody nuking each other, right? The internet was invented, right? And so there was this kind of euphoria, right? And to me, the the best example of that, right, is like the, the, 
the big show that kind of brought everybody together was Star Trek The Next Generation, right? And there was this idea that you well, its version of the future, right, reflected what the, the present of the 1990s was, which is basically we are on track to become one unified planet, right, that is then going to, you know, increase its diversity even to aliens, right? And we will be this peaceful federation, right? That was the kind of trajectory, sure, right? That's what sure. people saw. And if you look at Netflix now, right, it's all dystopia, right? It's all, here are the different ways in which we are all going to hell. And so, you know, I, I, I miss that kind of optimism, right? And I think this is where the, the European Union is useful, is that it gives us this kind of sense that there can be different modes of doing politics, right? And so, you know, I, I'm not sure that it's kind of a, a new history, right? But it's 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 more, do we think of, of history as this kind of, march of progress right towards whether it's more democracy or more freedom you know depending on how you sort of define it and that's why i really hope that you know this kind of rise in authoritarianism and rise in nationalism is more of a a a blip or a um right a a reactionary movement that'll go away right i i have this uh this debate with my wife quite often and she's a historian as well right so she she's a she looks at things from 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 much longer view, and she she thinks, you know what, this, we're we're in the blip, and it's really bad to li- be living in the blip, but it's still a blip from a historical standpoint. I'm a bit less sanguine than that, but um, maybe that's why you've you've seen me getting more and more optimistic is because uh, my my wife is rubbing off on me. Well, well, but, you, uh, you you are learning to listen to your wife, and this is exactly. the best advice you can take from anyone. <laughs> so I think that might be you know one one way in which is it's a new history, right? Is is <clears throat> to to sort of come back to this idea that the history can actually be seen as progress, right? Rather than just sure. one bad thing after another. Sure. And and one of the things both you and I experienced growing up in the 90s was how quickly things can change. And what you see in front of you, and I think this is probably what you've been discussing with your wife and many of your friends also, you know, is, you know, what, what we see in front of us is not the only historical dynamic. And so we can have... Viktor Orbán's and Vladimir Putin's and Donald Trump's who seem to dominate the media cycle. It doesn't mean they're dominating the historical cycle. Those are two different things. We experienced this with um, the unification of Germany, right? I mean, the, 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 all of the the naysaying, every major expert I knew as a undergraduate at the time, listening to them talk about this, said, oh, this this is going to wreck Europe. There could never be a unified Germany again. And, and look, everything you told us today, Lawrence, uh, Unified Germany is the anchor for the European Union, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, and, and I think that's right. You know, we we always talk about what's in the what's in the headlines, and then um, you know, uh, de- decades later, you, you you try to go back and be like, okay, why did the headlines not have not talk about the things that were actually going on? Right, exactly. Um, and it might exactly. be you know, Zachary and his friends, you know, mobilizing, and turns out that in five, ten years, they're going to vote in a way that is unpredictable or, or unpredicted today, right? And there's a sea change, a demographic change, and we no longer see Donald Trump's in office. Who knows? That's right. right. Inshallah. Inshallah. <laughs> <laughs> which which well, is as, appropriate as, for the European Union these days, as, too. Right? As, 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 as I've started saying in Texas, Inshallah and the creek don't rise. <laughs> the creek don't rise. Lawrence, thank you so much for sharing your, your insights, your wisdom, your your scholarship and your experiences, and also your, your budding optimism, which makes me all the more optimistic to see you back in the office in a few months <laughs> to share your optimism with you. <laughs> Well, me and my bubbly self will be there, Ace. <laughs> and Zachary, thank you for your inspirational poem, as always, and your comments. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. 
This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.